Hi there. We're sitting in exactly the same chairs as we were last time. Let me just get that out of the way. <laughs> and um, we're still standing by to see if Sales's kid is actually burning something down yeah, over there he, in that wooden shack. He claimed he just wanted to go and have a sleep, yeah. which was right at 11 a.m. <laughs> yeah, immediately aroused sure suspicions. I'm just going to tidy up now, <laughs> other things that you should never believe your kid would say. Now, um. Yeah. You have, I have done you the biggest solid in the world, oh. which was by doing a whole episode about Get Back with Guy Pearce, so you didn't have to talk I about know. it at the all. The thing that I love about that was, I don't know what was going on in your devious little skull, <laughs> but like, one thing that happens to Sales when she's had a bit of a break is that she comes back just absolutely teeming with ideas, and then I get these emails, usually from about, oh, usually about the 5th of January they start rolling in. Here's my idea for a musical that we can write. Here's my... Anyway, and then she emailed saying, hey, 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 I've got this, like, I've got this good idea. Why don't I do um, a thing about Get Back, a podcast, a full episode deep dive which I don't annoy you with, but I annoy somebody else who's equally obsessive about it. Like, what about Guy Pearce? And I'm like, how are you going to get Guy Pearce? Like, and then 40 minutes later, she's like, I've recorded it. It's done. I'm like, far out, man. You are so. The truth is the evil plan was hatched first, and then yeah. I thought I better... So I knew I better, that Guy was on board. So I thought I better I'd better go right past. pretend I've just thought of it. Well, because then I was thinking, what would I do if I'd, like, recorded this conversation and then I texted Crab and went, oh, hey, by the way, are you cool that I've done a pod with Guy? And what if you were like, uh, no, that's my podcast. How but dare you? That's interesting. Did you think that I would have a, like, that I'd be have a problem with it possibly? Oh, I just thought it would be ma- manners to like, you know. What, retrospective manners. <laughs> no. It's like Tony Abbott manners. Hey, guys, I've made no. Prince Philip a knight. Is that cool with everybody? I just like to think that if you suddenly <laughs> sort of recorded an episode with Idris Elba that you might check with me before you. Mate, I would never come back. I'd never speak to you again if I managed to get El- Idris Elba in the can. Anyway, so, so, the, speak. so the beauty is um, we don't have to talk about that because I watched nine hours of that and I had half an hour's worth of stuff to talk about, which is already out sure. there, so that's good. But I also... I um, thoroughly enjoyed Get Back, by the way. Did you? Yeah. I'm surprised. Did you watch the whole thing? No. I watched, <laughs> well, I watched a, like, an unseasonably long chunk of it. And I, I did. I enjoyed it. And I, because I wandered in while Jeremy was, you know... Yeah, Jeremy. Incredibly hungrily consuming every nanosecond. Do you, do you know what? Can I recommend for anyone who doesn't want to sit through the entire nine hours and who isn't... Which is worth it, by the way. It I is mean. worth it. And if you're not into the kind of the deep dive of the real nitty-gritty, just the final episode when they start the rooftop concert performance, it's so Stupidest brilliantly edited. Idea ever. They, they do a kind of split-screen thing period, and they dive in between what's going on downstairs at the door and the police oh, arriving, what's right. going on on the roof and what's going on in the street with people going, what, the, that sounds like the Beatles. Um, so, and it's just, there's a lot of comedy sort of in it. It's funny, oh. it's great. Their energy on the roof is brilliant and it's it's really, I was just grinning like an absolute idiot for the entire time. Um, so For more, see her extended <laughs> podcast with Guy Pearce. <laughs> <laughs> now, I wanted to talk about something which is, Sometimes, you know how sometimes the universe seems to throw a whole lot of books around a theme and you realise... We've constantly talk about this all the time. What is it? I know, it's just... So do you know... It's like starlings over Rome. So I was catching up... How do they form the patterns they form? (laughs) Exactly. I was catching up with a friend over uh, summer named Caroline who's got great taste in books and 
she mentioned a book she'd absolutely loved called Still Life by Sarah Winman, which was a bestseller in, um, I think, the UK, probably right. globally last year. Okay, year never heard of it. Yep. Why? How does this happen? And I had started reading it on holidays and I got, I said to Caroline, oh, I just I abandoned it. It was really dull. I didn't like it. She's just like, when what? they moved on to the pear <laughs> she was and like, the dead what? pheasant. <laughs> it was a Dutch still life. <laughs> She was like, what is wrong with you? It was fantastic. And then as she was speaking, because she was going, it's about life, it's about hope. it's about." And then as she was speaking, I had this complete kind of click, which is that's why I wasn't able to get into it because the theme for my summer reading is death. <laughs> you idiot. And families. Everything wow. that I read seemed to somehow, I'd be like, it's another book about death. It's another book about families. Like it just kept revolving around that was really really strange okay um so what i was going to do was share just an example of the way that my because you know i often talk about my reading style is down the rabbit hole yes i know i was going to give you an example of stack of phil jackson (laughs) coaching books stands (laughs) weary testimony to this failing of yours (laughs) so i was going to give you a sense of how this works so it started by i read a book called Mortals, How the Fear of Death Shaped Human Society by Rachel Menzies and right. Ross Menzies. Beach read, is that? <laughs> Beach read, yeah. And so just to um, give you a sense of the tone of the book, this this is what's the exact words that are in the final chapter. Um, <laughs> it is time for you to face the facts. You are a mortal ape and soon enough you will be dead. You will not be remembered. <laughs> you will be a dead ape. And so the gist of it is how much as human beings... Sorry, and that's the climactic, that's the high point of the book, that's, sorry? That's the gist of the book. Is okay. The gist of the book is we are all going to die well, and yes. you have to come to terms with that and accept it and behave accordingly. But they rattle through in great detail a squillion examples of the way that human beings will avoid uh, thinking about that and, and cannot come to terms, I mean, we've seen it all through the COVID period. People cannot come to terms with that. So that was, I found it really interesting. But in that book, it mentioned the book Frankenstein by Mary Shelley Mm -hmm. um, and said it was absolutely pivotal in uh, literature as the first of its uh, first book of that kind basically mm-hmm. and how influential the monster was. sort of thing yeah and the kind of they just they run through a whole lot of examples where it's basically you know the shape of water um God. uh fancy name. beauty and the beast fan of the opera like yeah. so many so many pieces of literature follow that kind of thing mm. of the misunderstood monster mm. um and the person who um you know is at the other end anyway so that made me think oh, that's interesting, I've never read Frankenstein and I thought it's been a while since I've read a classic so why don't I go for Frankenstein next? So then I went into Frankenstein, which I wouldn't say that I absolutely adored it, but what it made me realise is because that book is so famous, I have such a false idea about what it is. Um, And so... It's like the monster is always called Frankenstein, but that's not actually how it works. The doctor is Frankenstein, the creator, the scientist is Frankenstein. It's, It's basically about technology that's taken to the limits and the consequences of pushing the boundaries of technology. And then the monster, um, the creature, as it's called, basically is an absolutely hideous kind of thing. But a bit of a sweetie. Well, it wants to connect with people, but no one wants to connect with it because it's scary and horrible. And so that causes it to become bitter and hateful and murderous. Um, Anyway, it was... And the other thing, too, is I envisage it as, like, the green thing with the bolts on the side of the neck, and that's not what it is at all. Anyway, so that was an interesting read. That then got me. I mentioned to someone I was reading it, and they said, did you ever see the National Theatre in um, the UK, that production? They had it online for a while, which was 
Benedict Cumberbatch and Johnny Lee Miller and they alternated week on one was the monster oh, and one was the scientist. No, and then they really? swapped the following week. That's just showing off. Incredible. Anyway, I couldn't find it um, anywhere online. I watched the kind of promo for it yeah. uh, and it looked superb. So if that ever goes up online, can somebody who hears this text me or tweet me or something to tell me that it's there to be able to be watched? Then thinking about that and seeing Benedict Cumberbatch made me think, yeah, Benedict Cumberbatch, I've heard him talked about a lot, but I've never seen anything he's in. So that then drove me to watch Sherlock. Oh, my God, you are <laughs> so funny. You are so hey funny. Hey, Dan. Hello. Another random child. Another Hello. child. No, one How that can we help you, friend? Nothing. I just want to listen to you. Oh, you oh, can okay, come and sure. take a seat. It's, fascin- it's fascinating. Um, our show's big with the 10-year-olds. So that that's how my rabbit hole kind of behaviour works. Sherlock I actually really enjoyed and I thought it had a masterstroke, which is it's Sherlock Holmes set in the modern day and Dr Watson is a veteran from a military veteran who yep. served in Afghanistan yep. Iraq. Have yep. you seen it? No. Oh. Um, but basically, I've, I've walked into rooms and seen, you know, five minutes of it here and there. They come up with this thing, they never state it overtly, but it's clear in, that they're trying to plant this seed that Holmes is somehow on the, on the autism spectrum. Mm. He is, yeah, has right. an obsessive attention to detail. He has difficulty reading social right. cues. So this is the modern reconstruction is that yeah. his neurodiversity. And it, it works brilliantly. Um, and so they kind of, yeah, they sort of make it clear that Watson's neurotypical, Holmes uh, is neurodiverse, and then it goes from there. It worked, I thought, absolutely superbly. Oh, okay. Yeah, it was really good. So wow, I enjoyed okay. That. Did you ever see Patrick Melrose? No. I would absolutely advise you is watch that. Is he in that? He is Patrick right. Melrose, oh. um, which is um, a television version of the Edward Snorben novels, which is about this, um, which is an autobiographical account of Edward Snorben's completely crazed, terrible um, upbringing, which is that he's an um, aristocratic young man, absolutely addicted to every drug going, a total dissolute mess but super rich, like, mm. and um, and Cumberbatch portrays this mess of a creature in such a masterly fashion. It's just absolutely. I was a gog watching he, him. He, he's yeah. got the, his face is so kind of compelling. He's a very unusual looking man. He really is. And um, my daughter was showing me some lengthy online joke about um, the fact that you can actually. Um, manipulate his name in any way and people will still know who you're talking about like so if you say slippery jack um cotton socks people will be like i know exactly who you're talking to talking about <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. and it was true because i mean obviously i already knew that we were in on the joke but it's true you can you that's know that's true sleepy yeah. head you know yeah cotton mouth Oh, yeah. Anyway. Um, so then alongside that strange little rabbit hole that I was down, then the other thing that I do a bit over summer and at no other time is listen to audiobooks. Yeah. And it's because if I'm often sort of where I like to go over summer, uh, I do a really long walk in the morning that goes for about an hour and 20 minutes. And so sometimes I listen to podcasts, but actually it's kind of, it's a really good amount of time to sort of listen to an audio You just listen to showbiz memoirs, though. I love a showbiz yeah. memoir. Oh. I like a memoir read by the person who wrote it, and so that's... Yeah, that's I started listening to Matthew McConaughey's on oh, your yeah. recommendation. Did you like it? Um, well, I was cleaning up. I was cleaning the, uh, the toy cupboard at the time, which is a job that I find so appalling and annoying that I'd now associate Matthew McConaughey with 
oh. you know, domestic disorder. Oh. So I'm not sure if that was the best start for us to get <laughs> off to. I um, also bought the audiobook of Will Smith's memoir. Oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's really good, but yeah, I haven't started I've seen that. that sitting there and thought yeah. about getting it. So I listened to Taste by Stanley Tucci, which is a book that I think you would like. Right, Taste by Tucci. It. Taste by Tucci. So it's basically... Like saying Stanley Tucci. It's basically about how, even though he's made his career as an actor, his absolute passion in life is food. Yeah. Um, he would get on great with us sitting around banging on about, you know, how you make sponge cake or whatever. He just loves wow. it. Okay, so, I did not know that about Stanley And he's Tucci. obviously a great cook and he just speaks about food with such incredible passion. It's mm. fantastic. Um, and he's just... He's... You know, sometimes I talk about reading a book and I feel like, oh, I like the person's company. I remember yeah. I said it once about Stephen King. Stanley Tucci's got a really gentle kind of manner, quite a dry wish. Like, he's just, he's nice oh, okay. company. Um, but just when I was listening to it, I thought, oh, Crab might like this to read. And it includes recipes in it. Oh, okay. Um, That's, I find that a bit annoying. Well, it is when someone's just reading out lists of ingredients yeah. and stuff. But what, what about, um, like, is it just memoir-wise, is it a blow-yourself-up memoir? Or? No, it's, it's not at all. It, it's not... When I say it's a memoir, it's really not a, the story of his life, although it includes things about his life. It's a mem- it's a memoir of basically meals that he's had and things that he's cooked and oh gatherings. God, that he's sounds had. like a total bore. It, it, I like. I think you would like it. Wow, it was good. Okay. Yeah, I think if you like food, like I mean, I and I know you do. I enjoy hearing people talk about food, and I enjoy hearing people talk about their favourite meals. Yeah, and to a point and, though, a whole book. I mean. And yeah. then there was the amazing Tagliatelle. <laughs> he had. does it like, in a walk. The thinnest got... <laughs> shavings of truffle you couldn't imagine. I mean, it was extraordinary. Because he's got a nice personality. Completely it's melts better. on the tongue. It's I can't even that. explain it here. It's so good. <laughs> Um, No, it's good. I liked it. I didn't love it, but I liked it. Um, does, it does he recount any dreadful meals? I can't recall. I like a terrible film um, restaurant review. Can't recall. I think it's mostly meals that he's enjoyed. Um... And then they've got good anecdotes around them too. The book that I probably most enjoyed, although I, I did enjoy a few things over summer, but um, the other audio book was The Storyteller by Dave Grohl, and you know oh, that I love Dave Grohl. That's right in your slot, isn't Absolutely. it? Absolutely. Yeah. I adore Dave Grohl. Yeah. And... He is a brilliant... One of the things I like about Dave Grohl is he is an excellent raconteur and he's absolutely hilarious and he's just got so much energy and life about himself. And so it's a just fantastic... I was just dreading when it was going to be over because it was just so pleasurable having his company. So Um, is there good, like, ripping yarns in there? Oh, it's... Yes, because he's got a great eye for just a funny occurrence in everyday life, but he's Mm. also been involved in some really major, you know, like he was in Nirvana, for God's sake. So... The, this, the chapter where he talks about when before the album Nevermind even comes out and they've got the song Smells Like Teen Spirit, mm. they play it for the first time in a small club mm. and his description of the way the room just completely loses its mind, yeah. like, like the hairs on the back of my neck were wow. standing up. It was absolutely Were you amazing. picturing yourself? <laughs> were, you, were you just thinking... One day they'll be screaming for me in that same way <laughs> when I rip out a hot lick on my... Throat. And it was also things like he talks about... He, he was one of those kids who was always begging to learn a musical instrument and he loved the drums and he taught himself to play on the pillows in his bedroom. Oh. And so when his mother finally brought him a drum kit, he kept breaking it because he just pounded the living crap out of yeah. it all the time because he was used to smacking them really hard. Yeah. Um, the other thing too... I mean, there was just so many things about that memoir, but one of the things that stayed with me was... Um, Geez, he must have been hard to parent and his mother did a really, really good job, which is she's a teacher. His father, who they were, she was separated from, was a journalist and a speechwriter mm. at Capitol Hill, so quite a cons- oh, Republican, right. wow. quite conservative. Really? He grew up in the suburbs of Virginia, just outside Washington, D.C. 
always obsessed with music. His mother used to take him into a jazz club in Washington sometimes to listen to music. Right. Um, and he was just one of those kids who was always getting in trouble, not trouble like with the law, trouble like, oh, I just scalped myself or, you know, that yeah, kind right, of trouble, okay. always being injured. And he decided he wasn't going very well at school and he decided he wanted to drop out and join this punk band. With He was, I think, 17 and they were all 25 and he wanted to get in a van and drive right. around the country. Yeah. And at so many points along the way, I was thinking, oh, my God, if this was my kid, I'd be just so yeah. worried and so anxious. And his mother, who he adores mm. and talks about in really lovely terms, was very much like... I'll support you in what you want to do and, you know, you really want to do this and so, you know, I've got to support you in that. And so they've got a fantastic relationship and, um, yeah, and amazingly, I mean, wow. that could have gone badly wrong but it worked out well. He's, he's really evolved into this kind of, I don't know, like a, a, a sort of a real force for good in rock and roll, I reckon. Oh, 100%, well. yeah. And I wonder, like, if Kurt Cobain hadn't died, I wonder if he would have occupied a similar space like I wonder to what extent the way that people the goodwill that people have towards him um, would be different had he not had to navigate this extraordinary thing I, d I don't know I mean obviously there was a third guy in Nirvana Chris I think his name's Novoselic something like Nova that yeah um, he I mean I don't know what he does now Dave Grohl say if Kurt Cobain hadn't died and Nirvana just kept going mm. because Dave Grohl seemed to just love music and love playing in a band I think he could have quite happily continued yeah. to be a drummer in a, yeah. in a band when he talks about when Kurt Cobain died I mean obviously the band was kind of troubled yeah. um, and he knew that Kurt Cobain had a, a drug problem and, and whatnot. A month before Kurt Cobain died, his phone rang this day and it was someone, you know, one of their associates who said, oh, my God, Kurt's had an overdose and he's died. And um, Dave Grohl fell to the ground and was, like, weeping uncontrollably and just destroyed. And then an hour later the phone rang and it was the same person to go, actually, they think he's going to pull through. They've revived him and he's going to pull through. And so he had this huge, like... Is that true, though? Like, well, he said it in his memoir yeah. that's, that that happened wow. to him. So then a month later when Kurt Cobain actually died um God, right. he couldn't cry or grieve because yeah. he kept waiting for the call to say we got it's, it was a mistake yeah. and so he really struggled for a long time to come to terms with it and he talked about i mean it, it's really fascinating because nirvana well you know he certainly dave Grohl, wasn't an overnight success because he'd been a kind of jobbing mm. musician for years and years Nirvana, when that album came out, they went from nothing to the biggest rock band yeah, in the world. Yeah. Um, and so his description of what that's like to be in the centre of that mm. was actually scary and kind of traumatising because they had a whole tour booked and the venues all turned out to be way too small. and they just yeah. So it was kind of scary. In fact, my friend Tim sent me a video of them playing in this particular club where it was just, it looked terrifying. People just flying onto the stage and the security's punching people and then the security punches Kurt Cobain. It was just Wow. Did you ever see them? No. Did I you? Did, yeah. Oh my god. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. How amazing. Yeah, I saw them um at um the Theberton Theatre wow. in Adelaide. What which, was it like? Uh incredible. Wow. Yeah. And people were absolutely just dialed up to eleven like it was Wow. Um How know. amazing. When you grow up around Adelaide you're kind of like you're a cordially surprised and unbelievably grateful when a giant oh. rock band comes to LA because oh, like used to being left off the tour list so <laughs> it was yeah it was probably the most exciting concert I went to. So he after Kurt Cobain dies talks about trying to like 
you know, he's just a wreck. And so he goes to this remote part of Ireland to try to just get some space away from all the attention. And then he's driving down this deserted road and this kid's hitchhiking and puts his finger out. And so Dave Grohl goes to pull over to pick him up and then he sees the kid's wearing a Kurt Cobain T-shirt. Oh and so he just speeds up and drives off and he's having a panic attack. I'm like, I can't get away from this anywhere. And um, wow. So th- when you sort of hear how difficult and horrendous that was, like... I mean, I've always kind of admired anyway that he went from being the drummer of Nirvana to the front man of mm. Foo Fighters and created another really big, famous mm. band. But having heard all of that, I'm even more admiring that he managed mm. to kind of dust himself off and mm. to, to sort of take a risk of... Because, I mean, a lot of people would have been like, weren't you the drummer of that band? Like, what? Sure, yeah. Now you think you're going to be a front man? So I sort of really admired that. So anyway, the whole memoir is just brilliant. And then um, that sent me down. And it's worth listening as an audio book. Oh, I loved it. Great, okay. Just hearing him, his delivery is superb. It's just great. Um, I watched Nirvana on MTV Unplugged, which I hadn't seen for years and years, which was great. And then when COVID, uh, when the New York came out of lockdown and things came back on last year, in the middle of last year, the first concert at Madison Square Garden was Foo Fighters. And that just got put on YouTube just after I finished reading this thing. So that was also fantastic to kind of watch him and just watch his energy. In fact, he looks today, I think, like he probably should have come out of the womb looking, which is this big burly dude covered in tats with long dark hair and a big gruff looking beard. He's quite sort of bulky. Whereas, obviously, when he was in Nevada, he was this skinny, nerdy-looking little yeah, dude little with big teeth. And, yeah, bonker. So, anyway, that was great. The other audio book I read was The Happiest Man on Earth by Eddie Jacob. Oh, I haven't read that. Oh, it was really very different to those others. And it's it wasn't read by Eddie. It was read by an actor. But, uh, I mean, just for people who don't know who Eddie Jacob is, he just died, I think, last year at age yep. 100, mm-hmm. 101. Um, he was a Holocaust survivor who lived in Sydney who uh, used to do, he was a volunteer at the um, Jewish Museum in, in Sydney and uh, did tours and stuff and talked about his experience. So it's it's just this story of his family's life through that period and how he survived and what kind of got him through. And it was just, there's always something, even though we've heard, you know, variations of that story, mm. there's still always something to learn mm. from it. And so it was, he was an amazing person. And so that was really superb. Uh, and then I'll just rattle through kind of quickly the other bits and pieces that I read. Um, I watched Don't Look Up, yeah, which everyone's been too. talking about. I, I watched that too. What did you think? Because it's had mixed kind of... Yeah, I don't know. I think it's. I think there's a real risk when you assemble a super stellar cast for a, you know, B with a ca- big with a capital B kind of enterprise... It can either really, really work or you, you can be, I think, undercut by the, the weight of your, of your excellent cast. And I think that that's what happened here a little bit. Such an amazing cast. But the plot and the, like, the writing was super baggy. Like, there were points at which I just thought, sorry, what are we doing here, you know? And I think... Sometimes if you're massively assured of the success of your enterprise because you've got this amazing group of people, sometimes you can get it badly wrong. That said, um, it certainly is not the worst movie I've ever seen. I was, you know, it was um, a really good, simple premise, I think. Um, a tiny bit earnest in parts, um, but, you know, I quite enjoyed watching it. Yeah, I didn't, um, I didn't mind it yeah. at all. Um, at the end, I thought, well, I could have done with about half an hour less of that, I think, on the whole. 
Yeah. I, I really highly rate Leonardo DiCaprio. I, I mean, I know you can't tell the difference between him and Matt Damon, but <laughs> he's, a, he's a great actor. I think he's always good in, you know, whatever he does. And for, for a handsome man, oh, he's get, getting probably less handsome as he gets older, like all of us, um, he has a lack of vanity, I think, in his yeah. performances. Yeah, that's true. He, yeah. You don't feel like he's constantly conscious. He's my best side or yeah, anything. Yeah. yeah, he kind of is a bit warts and all. His character's a bit... It's, it's, his character's not super credible. That's, I think, one of the real no. issues with that movie is because he's a... Um, Geologist, essentially, like a, a scientist. Oh, he's not a geologist, is he? What, what is he's an astrophysicist. He's an astrophysicist. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Same thing. Do you know I the mean, reason you said geologist is because it's such a heavy-handed play on climate change, yeah, and so yeah, you've yeah. reached for that. Yes, yeah. that's true. Yeah. yeah. The, pro- the, true. the premise of the film is that a meteor, some scientists discover that a meteor is going to hit Earth and wipe out all human life, and they are, you know, ninety-nine percent certain. But everyone's like, oh, well, let's just see what happens. And they won't really act on it. Like, well, we're telling you this is going to happen. Yeah, and then the broadcasters and, you know, the the um, breakfast news presenter played by Kate Blanchett is kind of like, well, and now we'll get, you know, and now we'll get an opposing voice to come in and debate this question of is this comet heading for Earth and, you know, and he's like, well, you idiots, yes, it is, you know, <laughs> it's not a neither or, it's definitely happening. So there's a, there's a sort of barn door sized allusion there to climate change and the way everybody pretends that dire threats aren't really real or that they're yeah. an ideological push or whatever. Um, and don't look up is the slogan of um, President Meryl Streep who says um, it's not true that the comet's going to kill us all, don't even look in the sky, because you can see it by this stage coming hurtling towards the Earth. Anyway, so um, it, it kind of like could be a simple, elegant little idea. It's slightly beaten to death, and um, but, you know, it's, yeah. it's the last scene is absolutely worth the whole movie, I think. Like, the what happens when they... Yeah, the, when the when the Meryl Streep's yeah, demise. Yeah, 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 I was just thinking, it's, um, just yeah, um, it's very funny. Yeah, it is. And it, dark. it has funny moments. It's kind. Of, it could have been like Wag the Dog, but it was a bit flabby. Like it could have yeah. been quite a good satire, but yeah. it just didn't quite get there. Yeah. So I, wouldn't... I was going to say about Leonardo DiCaprio's play, um, character. He's this lovely family man. He's a scientist. He's just trying to save the world, and then he kind of like. He makes this decision to engage in a relationship, which I won't reveal if you haven't watched it yet. That just it just doesn't check out. Like it's not mm. it's not plausible. I guess it they're trying doesn't... to make the character like that he falls in love with his own celebrity and you know. Yeah, I guess um... so. I don't know. It seemed a bit sausage fingered to me. Yeah, yeah. There was a bit of that. Um, so then I also watched Love Me, which was on. Oh, I can't yeah. wait to see that. Yeah. So Hugo Weaving and Heather Mitchell and uh, some other great actors. It's it's a family. It's a father and two kids, and it kind of follows each of their sort of romantic lives. Um, I just absolutely love Hugo Weaving, and a bit like Leonardo DiCaprio, Leonardo DiCaprio, I feel like he always is fantastic. Yeah. I rewatched The Matrix recently because oh, yeah. the, the new Matrix mm. is coming out. Um, and I love that you watch the old Matrix just, <laughs> just to, to get ready, just to get yourself, <laughs> just all... to give me myself a refresh. And Hugo Weaving plays Agent, I think is it Smith. Um, and I don't know if you'll remember, but he has this very slow delivery. Yeah, right. And when I was watching it, I was thinking, God, it must have been. It works absolutely brilliantly on film, but I feel like when you were doing it in reality, you must have been thinking, Oh God, I hope this is going to be okay. Mm. Um, but he just fully embodies it and it works. Yeah. He's just really brilliant in that film. 
Um, anyway, he's fantastic in Love Me as well. And he and Heather Mitchell, because they're both, you know, really accomplished actors, just their way they play off each other yeah. is so fantastic and it feels really real. Um, so it was good. Uh, I watched... I've never seen either of those actors ever do anything badly. It's no. really interesting. Because you know how sometimes, you know, even great actors, they're sort of in the wrong role or you can tell they've been pushed around a bit or they're not quite it's comfortable. Bad material or... Yeah. yeah. And it's such a rare gift and I think it's true of Heather Mitchell and of um, Hugo Weaving. Just, I don't know, they kind of invest everything with this sort of assurance and heft that is... Um, can magically transform even definitely yeah, something that might not be all the way there otherwise definitely um i there was a show that i used to talk about a lot that i really liked called masters of sex about oh masters yeah of johnson and um, they made another series well they did ages ago and i just never never oh, right. watched it at the time and so when i was looking around thinking oh, i've got nothing to watch i thought oh they've got a season four of this that i hadn't ever uh seen so i jumped into that and it was as good as ever um a show that I absolutely adored was called The Parisian Agency. It's on Netflix. Oh, another obscure French thing. Another obscure thing-o. French thing. It's a reality I show. I still haven't watched Call My Agent. Oh, which, that yeah. is such a treat for you when you do that. Uh, the Parisian Agency is a reality show. It's about a real estate business, a luxury real estate business in Paris. Are you just working through the professions in Paris? <laughs> you've been through spies and you've been through Actors agencies, yeah. real estate. So it's... Uh, mother and father and they have four sons the youngest one's still at school but the other three will work in the real estate business right. and it's basically they they are sellers and buyers agents so people mm. come to them and they go I want to sell my luxury apartment and I want to buy a house right. in you know Cyprus or wherever <coughs> and then they help find what they're after or a fashion magazine says we need a, this kind of a location for this right. sort of a shoot yeah and they find um, a place so it ticks every box because it's divine apartments all the time the family's gorgeous and sort of so French and there's just beauty shots of Paris right. all the time and they're just a really nice family right. uh, who are all super close and enjoy working together or so the show edits it to make it appear. Right. Uh, anyway, it was light and fluffy and it was so just like, like so nice. So it's sort of Ray White in Paris. It was Ray White in Paris. It was absolutely, <laughs> it was just a lovely, lovely show. Um, and then finally, the last thing I wanted to talk about was and just like that, which is the Sex and the City Jesus, reboot. you didn't. I did. Ugh. I did. So my first thought is, <laughs> this is so shallow. I'm, but actually, I'm just rubbing my eyes. So many times I thought, God, Sarah J- Jessica Parker's feet must be killing her. Oh, she's still got the monologues, Oh, she? God, and I know how what my feet feel like these days. And, you know, she's walking enormous New York City blocks in high heels. I just kept thinking her feet must be killing her. And for all of the other middle-aged ailments that they bang on and on about, they don't ever mention that her feet are killing her. She has a hip replacement, but she's What? Still... She has a hip replacement? Are you for real? <laughs> That's made up. She has a hip replacement, but nobody takes it to task about the shoes. But anyway, um, oh, it's... That's just... That had error written all over it, I reckon. Look, but it's... isn't, like, not all of them are... Isn't, isn't the sensible one out? Uh, I don't want to spoil anything. The sensible one, Miranda, you're thinking of. Oh, um, no, but whichever one of them clearly knew better didn't participate, right? Like, isn't, Oh, isn't sorry, really, I see what you mean. Uh, Kim Cattrall. Yes. Yeah. yeah, Samantha, she didn't, she's not in the show. And why didn't she participate? Do we know? Um, she seems to have had some kind of falling out with Sarah Jessica oh, right. Parker, oh, okay. um, from what I know, but who would know? Um, and then, and of course, Chris Noth has been outed as a sex best, <gasps> so he's, you know, that's... But uh, anyway, so the feeling that it gives me, it's not universally horrendous. 
but it's certainly not good. It's somewhere in between. But the feeling it gives me is, so those characters, if you were a fan of that show, which I know you weren't, they are people that you kind of have fondness and affection for, Mm. particularly, I think, the Sarah Jessica Parker character. And then it's 20 years on, basically. So when you see them, it's like when you have seen somebody that you used to be really good friends with, like maybe a university Mm. friend and you were best, best, best buddies, but you haven't seen them for years and Mm. years. And so when you get together, there's almost a forced sense of that we're still good friends, even though you're not really. And it's that thing of, God, was was Annabelle always this in a way? Or has she she changed or have I changed? And so there's certain, like, so the Charlotte character, I I find, I used to find her quite annoying in the original show. Now I find her massively annoying. And so it's like, wow, was she, maybe she was always this annoying, but like, is it me? Have I changed? So it's this kind of unsettling sort of feeling. And of course, because it's 20 years on, everyone looks older too, as do you, the viewer. So it's kind of confronting to you for for your own kind of ageing and mortality and stuff. So I would say all round, it was a kind of uncomfortable watch. But there were certain things like I still like the clothes and I still like seeing New York. And um, I think of the actors, Sarah Jessica Parker, best embodies the sort of vibe of what her character was always like. Is she like. still doing that annoying thing where she sits on her bed and types out something totally banal <laughs> like it's a, like an incredible... And so I got to thinking. Uh, yeah, oh, my God. She does. She, she, so I've she's never still seen writing somebody... the fucking column? No, she has a podcast now. Um, oh, God. <laughs> she's looking for material for the podcast. Oh, God. I know. It's... And then Miranda, who's sort of, you know, was the smart, sensible one, uh, is kind of... I actually think in reality she would be somebody who'd be well across all of, you know, woke politics and and the Mm. latest NPR podcasts and all that kind of stuff, but actually she's a bit clunky and dumb and keeps sort of saying inappropriate things and it's like, oh, God. Um, So, Well, this sounds like a complete nightmare. Right, good. And um, just... I. Over your summer, did you listen to any podcasts at all? Speaking of no, because every time I listened, I just listened to audiobooks. Okay. I listened to... um, I listened to one called Believe Her, which is about a um, woman who um, shot her violent husband and mm. then was imprisoned for life and it goes into her story and then various legislative changes that allowed her to um, get a reduced sentence. It is... I'm, ra- I'm racing through it and I'm like, you're looking at me with your gimlet eye. No, it's because and I know that my child like, never returned from the wooden cabin, oh, so I want right. to go up when there I, and When it's my turn on. to talk, suddenly worried about the children. Right, okay. Um, anyway, but I'm also, you know, John Monson's got a new podcast. Yes. That has, been, has been only available to um, British listeners for like months. Oh. It's been out for months. And I think it's about to become available. What's the general gist of it? What's it about? It's called Things Fell Apart and I think it's about culture of tribalism like i think it's oh, great interesting anyway okay, sounds good but uh, right. but we, we should just go and see if your children haven't fallen off something. we will <laughs> i can't see flames so how bad could it be <laughs>